Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I remember there was an old chap there and suddenly he started saying, yeah, we like prisoners in this country. We like birds in a cage and they will never let us out. And his mates kept saying, oh, shut up, whatever his name was. You know, you know you can't say things like that. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. In 1981, Marie-Claude Hawkes was an 18-year-old living in Amiens in France when she embarked on a trip to East Germany looking for adventure. Among her experiences was working in a lignite coal mine. Lignite is considered the lowest rank of coal and the most harmful coal to human health, but it was a major fuel source for East German power stations. Marie-Claude travelled from Paris to Leipzig on an overnight train and stayed at the international youth camp in Borna. From there she travelled every day to work at the open lignite mine at Espenhain, about 16 miles from Leipzig. She describes working at the mine, weekends off, visits to Leipzig, Magdeburg, Weimar and a potato peeling factory. It's a fascinating view of East Germany away from the capital, Berlin. Now, the Cold War conversation continues in our vibrant Facebook discussion group and on Twitter. Go and look for the links in the episode information. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I decided to support Cold War Conversations with a monthly subscription for a couple of reasons. I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Books will tell you so much, but the real-life stories from people who were there make it so real. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Marie-Claude Hawkes to our Cold War conversation. It started with uh, an article in our local newspaper. A friend of mine found it and she knew I was studying German. I'd had one year at university already. And she thought it would be um, quite a good thing to, to do, you know, some, a bit of an adventure. 
So we applied because you had to send a, a letter in those days. You had to send letters. And they sent us a form and we showed the form. They asked us, you know, about what, who we were, what we did, etc., And uh, questions about health as well as a thing. I seem to remember. Then they told us we could um, go and work in East Germany because the advert was for either working in July in Mecklenburg, so problem, uh, to pick strawberries or to work on a mine. And that was in August in Leipzig. And my friend could not work in July because she was doing some work with Jeroen. And um, so we decided it would go in August. So we had the mine instead of the strawberries. But a bit of a bum deal, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, did you know what a lignite mine was? Or Yes, I was. I was because um, the year before, when I took my um, baccalaureate, which um, is like the A-levels, we actually studied the geography and the economy economics of Germany, both East and West in those days. And um, actually, there was a photograph of the mine I went to work for in my geography book. And I remember seeing the, that, that photograph. And that is pretty amazing, isn't it? Of all the lignite mines in East Germany, it happened to be yours. Eh? <laughs> it's the biggest one. That was the biggest oh, okay. one in East Germany. Right. Incredible. And were you wary of going to work in East Germany? I mean, did did you think mm, Berlin Wall and all that sort of stuff? No, not at all. I was, I was quite you know ready for it. I, I was um, up for it. My parents, on the other hand, were slightly surprised <laughs> because when I told them, you know, about the, the the newspaper and and we had we decided what we wanted to go, my friend and I. Yeah, they they asked me if you know if I really wanted to do some heavy work and work in a mine, which was a very physical work. And they also expected me to sort of go down a mine, but it's not; it's an open air mine. So yeah, they let me go. I just turned eighteen anyway, so they couldn't stop me. <laughs> yeah. So the health check was to check that you had the correct fitness level. That's right. Yeah, uh, we couldn't have things like asthma or anything like that. So. I was in good in good health anyway, so I used to cycle twelve kilometers a day, so I was fine. Okay. Did you did you take anything particularly with you in anticipation of shortages or anything, or what did you do about packing? I didn't know there would be shortages. <laughs> I've never been to East Germany. Um, no, there was a list of things we had to take with us. Um, we had to buy overalls, you know, sort of tight. A bit like dungarees type things and heavy shoes, um, things like sun cream, that sort of stuff. Uh, but that was about it. And if we played an instrument like the guitar, because they, we would be living on a, on a youth camp with other young people uh, from different nationalities, from obviously behind the Iron Curtain, um, they were going to organize some sort of cultural evenings where we could sort of exchange, you know, um, songs and and games and things like that. So if we, I don't play an instrument, unfortunately, but I could speak reasonably good German, even after one year at university, that was okay. So that was that was it, really. We, um, it, apart from the yeah, the clothes and things like that, I didn't think of taking any food or I thought 
yeah, it's, it'd be fine. You know, they didn't tell us to take any food anyway. Uh, it was the organization that organized that was called uh, France RDA, sort of France GDR. And because I lived in, uh, in Amiens, uh, capital of Picardy, which at the time was, had um, a communist council, they had very strong links with um, East Germany. And Anya was actually twinned with Görlitz in East Germany. Hence the advert in the newspaper. Because in Britain, we had like East German, Great Britain Friendship Society yes. and things like that. Um, it sounds like a sort of similar sort of setup, although I'm not aware of many communist councils in the <laughs> early 1980s. So what, what was the, the journey like to get there? Tell me about the journey. Well, I had to travel from Amiens, obviously, to Paris because we, we, we had to catch the train at Paris East Station and we had to meet our leaders because we had young, young people. They were slightly older than me. And we had to meet at the East Station in Paris. And then we traveled from Paris to Leipzig on a, an overnight train. And it took a long time because we left, oh, I'd say about 10 at night. And we got there about seven-ish in the morning. So it was, it was a long journey. Um, and what they did, the, or the, our leaders, there were three of, three of them, I think. And they took our passports before we left. They gathered all the passports. And uh, so that when we got to the border, I suppose, with East Germany, they must have had them all stamped. Because uh, the next morning, they, they gave us our passports back with a nice GTR stamp on it. Were you woken up when you crossed the border or did you sleep through most of it? Matt, we slept through most of it. I could sleep. I, I could sleep on clotheslines in those days. You know, I was, I was young. I was only eighteen, but um, I remember when we were on the on the train. Sometimes we, in the middle of the night, you know, sometimes we stopped and it was, and we just looked where we were or whatever. But I can't remember much of about being woken up. I don't think they woke us up because they didn't check. They already had our passport, and I think we must have had the whole carriage. Because there were, I'd say there were about 30, 40 of us. Were the, you know, your fellow workers on, on that train, were they from communist families in the main or just looking for adventure a bit like you? <laughs> I think they were looking for adventure. Um, there were a couple of people in the group who, um, who knew communist songs, if you see what I mean, like the, I don't know, the red scarf and things like that. Um, there were a couple, but the rest of us, I mean, we were quite a motley crew, really. Three of them, actually the girls in our carriage, in our, we had a compartment, there were six of us in there, and three of them were teachers. Uh, there was my best friend, myself, and there was another girl who was a at school, I think. Uh, so she was, must have been about 17. And the teachers were in their, I don't know, mid-twenties, and one of them was a German teacher. But the others, oh, there was all sorts of people. There were lots of students. We had one who was a chef in Paris, but he was training to be an opera singer. As you do. Of course. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there, there were actually, there were some much younger people than me. Uh, we had two in when we had our room, 
and there were two girls with us, and they were about 16. It was, it was quite a variety of people. So you arrive in Leipzig at 7 a.m. In, in the morning. What, what's the sort of scene that presents you there, and that how do you get to the camp? Right. When we arrived there, I mean, the first thing that really hit me was how big the station was. Because Leipzig station is enormous. It's massive. And also, um, they had steam trains, which was amazing. I mean, most of the trains were like diesel, I think. And I think at the border, they must have um, switched the engines. I couldn't believe they had steam trains. You know, a bit like the Flying Scotsman type thing, but a bit grubbier. It was, it was very, it was very gray. You know, that's what everybody says. I know everybody says that, but it was a bit colorless and it was a beautiful summer's day. Um, so after, when we arrived, we had some, uh, two girls that were waiting for us and, uh, they were called Marion and Gerlind and they were, they were our East German contacts. So they were going to look after us. They were really lovely girls, actually. And um, we, we got on the bus and we traveled to the youth camp and got our rooms. We were also allocated our rooms. And then we had breakfast and we had a meeting and they were with the people who were going to employ us. <laughs> they told us what sort of groups we were going to be in. Some people were going to clean little bricks they used to make bricks little bricks out of lignite to heat people's houses you put them in like a little furnace i don't know if you've ever seen those yeah they're like briquettes that's it uh one group that was their job to clean them up all day can you imagine crikey another one i can't remember what they did and we they were about 12 of us we were assigned to digging big trenches to put uh, pipes, like water pipes or whatever pipes. We were going to be the diggers. That was going to be our job. But then they told us we had to, to get up at something like half past five in the morning. And there was a, an insurrection in, in the ranks. I don't think they'd ever seen that, these people. Yeah. Because all, it's a we, workers' uprising, was it? Oh, yeah, it was like that. I was like, oh, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> no, we're not getting up at that time. I reckon they hadn't seen anything like that since 1953. They hadn't. So um, we discussed it with the girls, with Gerlin and Marion, and eventually we, I think we were going to get up something at like 6 o'clock, which was early enough, because we had to start work quite early. Um, because if, as you know, in the summer in Germany, it, it's very hot. And uh, so we had to finish early. We used to finish work at about three o'clock. So after that, that was decided. So they were happy. We were happy. The unions had worked their magic. And, um, so we, the rest of the day, we just sort of looked around, met a few people. I met a lovely, um, Ukrainian girl from Kiev, actually. And uh, we became really good friends. I, and I, I corresponded with her for quite a long time afterwards. I think of her quite often at the moment, actually. And um, there were some really nice students there. There were loads of Russians. 
uh, lots of source, people from the Soviet republics, Czech people, Polish people, all sorts. Were there were there many other sort of contingents from the West? No, there? it was just us. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. There were about 30 of us. That's it. And the camp was huge. It was in Borna, which is just outside Leipzig, about 20 minutes. And that work must have been quite backbreaking, was Uh-oh. it not? Or? Yeah. I mean, our, our typical day, we'd get up at about six. Well, Martha, who was the, the, the opera singer, he used to go from room to room and sing to us to wake us up, right? So what, get, did he, what did he sing to you? What did he serenade um, you with? Usually it was things like Toreador, you know, from uh, Carmen. That was one of his favorites. Yeah, yeah. So we used to <laughs> tell him to go away. And uh, we'd get up, get dressed, put our, our working gear on. And uh, then a little bus would take us to um, to Espenheim, which is where the, um, the mine was. We'd have a, a quick breakfast. Um, usually bread rolls and cooked meat and a bit of cheese. And then we'd start work and we'd dig until about, oh, we'd start work about eight-ish, four past eight. We'd have a break around half ten with more bread rolls and more cooked meat. And uh, we, we, we dug a lot. And it was hot. And uh, we had, they, they actually gave us um, like a jacket a bit like a denim jacket to work with. And we had helmets as well. They provided us with helmets. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the health and safety was uh, was like. A bit on the minimal side. That was it. And we, we had, a, we had a, a sort of older gentleman that looked after us. He was our, our chef, our big chief. And he told us where to dig, really. So we had our spades. We had our heavy boots and Overall, so we just dug. And um, then we had lunch, about 12-ish. And after that, oh, and the lunch was, it was a bit grim, I must admit. I mean, for delicate French palates, it's a bit grim. I guess the chef was appalled at what uh, you were being served with. It was a bit um, um, pork and potatoes most of the time. And red cabbage. Oh, we had lots of red cabbage. Oh, because I think you, yeah, I think you tweeted me because I think I tweeted a photo of Eric Honecker or something like that, and you said, "Oh God, I used to that face was over my head all the time yeah. in the canteen or something." I think you said, "Yes, there was a, a big picture of him in the canteen, and uh, he was there, yeah, all the time looking at us while we were having our lunch." Actually, there was a funny thing once with Eric. Because one day, 
the, the people who were with me, they, I mean, I, I said there were a couple who were definitely on the communist side. I'm, I'm a bit of, I'm, a, I'm on the left side, you know, but, um, and my parents never had anything against the Germans at all. I mean, some French people do, but my parents never did. In fact, they, they were some of the first people to do exchanges with Germany. And um, so they were not against me going, but East Germany was, yeah, it was on the other side of the Iron Curtain, so it was a bit different. Anyway, so one day, it was a beautiful sunny lunch, and um, there was a, this, the rays of sunshine hit Erich Honecker. And a friend of mine said, that's it, I'm converted. I will become a communist. <laughs> but most of us won. And I think after our trip to East Germany, I don't think many of us would have become communists at all. You were very much a novelty there. If you were the only contingent from a Western country, did people ask you, you know, what was your life like in, in France and, and things like that? Um, not many. Some of the Russians spoke not a lot of German. And we, I mean, I spoke German, obviously. The Czech didn't speak much German. It's only really, there were a couple who were a bit more interested, like, like, um, the Ukrainian girl, uh, Natasha. She was, she, every, virtually every night she came in and chatted with us. But the others, they didn't tend to socialize much. I think they might have been a bit wary of having too much contact with people from the West. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the things I, I was going to ask you is, were you aware of, or did you have a feeling that you were being watched or that, you know, people were keep, keeping a particular eye on you? Not particularly, actually. Uh, the girls looked after us. You know, if we needed something or, like, we, had, we took some money with us and every week they gave us some, like, the equivalent in pocket money in East, East Mark. And if we, like some people were under the weather or something, you know, they, they'd be there to look after us. Um, that's about it, really. No, we were um, very much left to our own devices, which was quite nice. I mean, then maybe they bugged the rooms, I don't know. To be honest, I, yeah, it doesn't matter. What did you, what did you do in, in your spare time when you weren't working? Well, we, we worked till about two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon because the mine is a huge, was a huge complex. There were loads of buildings and, um, there was a, a massive yard next to the place where we, we had our lunch and there was a huge pile of wood. And the first week we were there, they said, right, we need to move that pile of wood. And uh, because we need to, you need to, um, sweep underneath in case it catches fire. Okay. So the first week we were there, we moved that pile of wood. It was enormous. It must have been about three meters high. And so, yeah, every afternoon we moved the wood. And then after we moved the wood, they said, right, we're going to sweep now. So a couple of days we swept. And, and then the following week we thought, oh, that's it. We've got the afternoon off. And they said, no, you're going to put the pile of wood back now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, exciting stuff. Brilliant. After work, um, often we would get the equivalent of the, you know, they have something in Germany called the Regiobahn, which is the regional ba um, train. It's a mix of um, 
of the um, Straßenbahn, the tram and um, train. And uh, so we used to get on the train in, um, in Barna and go to Leipzig. That was a, a favorite outing. Um, because Leipzig is quite a lovely place. Uh, so we had to look around and, you know, saw a few places. We used to spend quite a lot of time sort of hanging around Leipzig. They took us to a, a disco once as well, <laughs> where the boys were not allowed to wear jeans. And uh, we wore sort of skirts and dresses because that, or if you had trousers, no, nobody was allowed to wear jeans in that disco place. Um, oh, coming back to the train, yeah, there was something about funny about the train. Before you go back to the train, I want to know a bit more about the disco. What what sort of music were they playing there? Oh, it was like there was Western music. Uh, there was some German, like so I would call schmuzel music, you know, where you sort of schmooze to. Um, sort of typical, typical German music. You know, it's I can't explain what typical East German music is, but it's not. It tries to be Western, but it's not. If you see what I mean. And if they had some Western music, I think they had ABBA actually. Well, that's pretty safe because Sweden's neutral, I guess. So, yeah, uh... something from quite a long time ago, you know, for me anyway. And um, there was nothing that in those days you had people like Kate Bush, you know, early eighties, and people like that or Super Trump or whatever. Uh, they didn't have anything like that. But the, the thing that always got me was the fact that young people didn't try to talk to us. Because I was really keen to try my German. But no, they, they, they were not very, I don't know, maybe they were afraid that some people would be listening on, listening to what they were talking about. Or I hadn't realized then that things were, the controls over people were so tight. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people would have probably been wary of being noticed talking to you and then becoming suspect potentially. Mm. And with with people of the age that you were as well, it might have affected their chance to go to university or something like that. You know, there's there's sort of those sort of future implications as well if, if you've been thought to be contaminated by Western ideas by Marie Claude. We poison their minds. Yeah, with Kate Bush and Super Trump. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go back to the uh, the train. Tell me about the train. Well, the train. What struck me is that there were actually three classes on the train. You know, I mean, normally you have first and second. There you had. There was a third one, and we travelled on the third one. The girls got us some tickets, and they were not for first and second. And inside the train, in each compartment, you had that benches, and they were made of wooden slats, a bit like park benches. I thought, gosh, that's a bit... I've never seen anything like that on the train. That really, that stayed with me for a long time. A, to travel third class, and B, to have these things. It was like Victorian trains. Well, you'd expect in a classless society to not have any classes on the yeah, I didn't expect trains, them to have. To, to be honest, I didn't expect them to have first, second. Well, maybe first and second, but not third. I remember going on the S-Bahn in Berlin and being surprised by the wooden seats mm-hmm. on there. 
Um, but you, you know, you're not traveling that much of a distance, I guess. No, it was only um, about 20 minutes. If that, so it was all right. In the evenings when you were at the camp, you would just had to be with all the other French people because you couldn't really, uh, mingle with anybody else by the sound of it. Yes. We, they didn't encourage us to, to mingle with the others. As I said, I tried to talk with the others because I, I could speak some German. I even tried my, 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 my own, my little bit of Russian because I spoke, I'd done Russian for a year. So at least I could introduce myself and say where, where I came from, that sort of thing. But no, they, they, they never really encouraged us. Um, and there was very little to do in the camp. So we were very much left to entertain ourselves. Apart from Natasha, who was a, a regular visitor to my, to my room. <laughs> she was brilliant. How did you entertain yourself if there's nothing, you know, to do there? Well, some people brought tapes and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So we would listen to music. And, and also because we came from such different areas of France and we came from different backgrounds. And so as I said, some people were students, some people were still at school, some were already sort of in, had professions. So uh, we, we got to know each other pretty well, I must admit. And I mean, the first thing we did when we came back was to have a really good scrub because we were filthy and, um, the smell was unbelievable as well because lignite really stinks. So we, I used to spend a good 20 minutes having a good scrub blowing my nose. And that was not nice. You can imagine. Presumably the dust from it would get everywhere. Oh, it did. It was everywhere. Um, I mean, I dread to think what it's like when you go underground, but that was overground. Did they make any attempt to indoctrinate you in any way? Were there any um, political classes you had to attend or anything? No, no, they didn't. Um, they took us to various places, you know, like we went to the museum, what was it called? The monument in Luxembourg. There's a huge monument of the battle or something which is to commemorate the Germans thrashing the French anyway. So they took us there. They took us to various factories as well after work. I remember we went to a factory that made something called Baumkuchen. It's like um, a cake that's, it's like a, it looks like a tree trunk. It's got lots of different layers of, um, of cake and sugar and vanilla and, oh, it's delicious. So mm, we went good. to visit that. We went to a potato peeling factory. That was exciting. Rock and roll lifestyle you had there, definitely. Potato peeling factory. Yeah. Wow. They had a, a factory where they peeled potatoes. So the potatoes came in and they had all these women with machines that peeled the potatoes and then the potatoes went into bags and they were very proud of that. As you would be. As you would be. Wow. Any any other sites that uh, stick out in your mind apart from potato peeling and cake making? Uh, we went to Weimar as well. And um, because we went first, before we went into Weimar, we went to Wolfenwald. Uh, because we had a, a wreath to put for the French people who had been killed there. Um, so we had a, a visit of the of the camp. Um, there wasn't much left of it, um, because I think they must have pulled down all the barracks. And that, that was a really sad place to go to. It's on a hill, actually. Wolfenwald is on a hill, 
overlooking Weimar. I don't know if you've ever been there. No, I haven't. Um, it's on it's on a big hill on the other side. It's not far from Weimar at all. And uh, there's um, a big monument to the people who, would, who had been killed there. So we put, we laid a wreath for the people, the French people particularly. Um, and we visited the place, and there was a talk about the camp and what happened um, in a sort of. There was a, a huge room where they showed us. They had um, some slides as well and showed us um, slides of photographs of what happened and talked to us about what happened. But what quite shocked me is that they still had some ovens. They still had crematoriums there. And there was a group of Russian soldiers in their uniform, sort of visiting as well. And they were laughing their heads off. And I found that really, I don't know, lacking respect. I don't know why mm. they were laughing. We weren't laughing because it was a very serious place. That is strange. I mean, that, those sort of places are so powerful. You can't help being moved by exactly visiting yeah. those and being somber. I, I really don't understand people who like take selfies and stuff like that at these places nowadays. What they did quite often, every time we visited somewhere or they talked to us about something historical, like in, in, at, um, at Buchenwald, it was always the fault of the fascists. But it always sounded as if in East Germany, there were never any fascists. All the fascists were on the other side. So they, they were as white as snow. They'd never done anything wrong, you know, because they were on the side of the communists who didn't do anything like that. That was very strange. That was always their ideological viewpoint, wasn't it? That they'd got rid of all the fascists and it was a pure socialist state. But as we know, you know, there were a number of people who very quickly switched from a, uh, one type of red and black to just red. That's right. Um, you know, very quickly at the end of World War Two. How long are you digging trenches and moving piles of wood for? Oh, we did that for nearly two weeks. Did it feel longer? <laughs> oh, yes. I had big blisters on my fingers for, for weeks. You know, and it, it, took, it took a long time to, um, to heal. I also lost about five kilos because the food was not brilliant. Um, there was very little variety. I felt really sorry for these people. Uh, we had very little fruit, very little dairy, no chocolate, you know, nothing, you know, exciting. One day, actually, they brought in a huge vat of rice pudding and we thought, oh, why are they bringing dessert? Where's the main course? And they said, that's the main course. Right. Okay. All of us, we lost a lot of weight. Now, when we went to Weimar, after I visited to Buchenwald, there was um, something called a milk bar. And a uh, milk bar. And uh, we sort of descended on that because they had ice cream. And we bought loads of ice cream and lots of milkshakey type things. And because we were sort of so happy to find something like that. I'd love to go back to Weimar as well. I mean, it's probably changed, you know, masses, but it was very, very pretty. And we visited, I think it was Schiller's house. Is that the Goethe or Schiller's? I can't remember exactly. I think it was Schiller. 
Um, we were allowed to. I'm not. I'm not that that strong on German literature, so I wouldn't be able to help you with that one. Uh, it was. Uh, it was very. It was really beautiful, and we just had a look around. Um, it, it was very pretty. It made a. It made a nice change from the mine. I must admit. Of your experience in East Germany during during that period, what is is there anything that particularly stands out for you that we've not already um, covered there? Ah, it's the fact that one of the people who was with us, one of the French people, young or young man, um, did something very stupid one day. We were on our way to the to the mine, and. Um, Suddenly, we saw people, and they were all chained together. And we thought, "Hello, you know, who are these people?" And uh, one of the the young men in our group took a photograph. He had his camera, and he took a photograph. And um, at the end of the day, they sort of gathered us in one of the rooms and said, "Right, one of you took a photograph." of the people today, this morning, on your way to work. And we thought, cracky, how do they know that? And um, we were going to go to Leipzig afterwards, and I had my camera. I'd taken my camera. I wanted to take photographs, but I hadn't started my film just as well. So um, the young chap had to say that was him. He'd taken the photograph. And uh, he said, they said, why did you take photographs? And he said, well, they're prisoners, aren't they? I've never seen people like that in, in chains. And they say, oh, they're not prisoners. These people have come because they know they've done something wrong and they've come of their own free will to work for our government and make amends. And the next day, that young man was sent back to France. So it was a word of warning. Do not mess up with German authorities. After your two weeks in the uh, lignite mine, where where did you go to next? We spent two weeks in Leipzig and then we went to Magdeburg for two weeks. We didn't do much. We we were supposed to go to somewhere called Zichtal, and uh, but the camp there was flooded, so they sent us to Zichtal instead. And we thought, oh, we're going to be with some young people, maybe this time, and because we want work, we'll be able to socialize. And we were with little pioneers, and they were aged between eight and twelve. Brilliant. <laughs> so this was like a holiday camp for yeah, it was quite nice youth. actually. We had we had little chalet bungalows uh, for six of six of us. Uh, each had a, a little bungalow, and um, we we did some sports, and um, we went to different places. We went to Magdeburg, went to all sorts of places like there was uh, some lakes and we went boating on the lake uh, we had different outings but we were left to our own devices a lot and Tsvikau is not very big is it Tsvikau it's called yeah I think so and um, we ended up quite a lot of the time in the local the local Kneiper because <laughs> the village had about 300 people and what happened with a French group is there was another group of French people who were in East Germany at the same time as us, but on a different site, and they joined us for that uh, last fortnight. So you can imagine about 60 young French people descending on the pub in this afternoon. And some East Germans actually talked to us. I remember there was an old chap there 
And he must have been, oh, he was old to me then. He was in his 60s. And um, we, we chatted to him because he, he didn't care. And suddenly he started saying, yeah, we like prisoners in this country and we like birds in a cage and they will never let us out and blah, blah, blah. And he carried on like that. And his mates kept saying, oh, shut up, whatever his name was. You know, you know you can't say things like that. And I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing, you know. Yeah, that was interesting. But he was older, so he, he obviously didn't care, to be honest. If you were of pensionable age, you could leave East That's Germany. Right. Then East Germany wouldn't have to pay your pension, if, for example, if you'd went, gone to the West, so it wasn't such a burden on the exactly uh, on the on the country. Wow, it was like a a two week holiday then after yes, you've done the two weeks in in the mine. It was R and R, you know, uh, after the mine. There wasn't much to do, but uh, we, we, there were some lovely walks around the um, where we were. Actually, it was a beautiful countryside, so we used to go for walks quite a lot. Got on the bus, go to Gardelegen, which was around the corner. And um, that was it, really. I did a look around. and I, I quite like Gardelegen. It was quite a nice little town. Did you go into Magdeburg as well or not? Yes, we went to Magdeburg. What, what did that have to offer? It was not a nice place. No, not, not much then. <laughs> it was a bit grim. Uh, the day we went, the weather was horrible anyway. And it was very grey. And I remember we went to... A, a big church, um, and we had just a look around. That's that was it. I didn't. You know, Magdeburg was not my um, my favorite place. I must admit. Uh, so after the two weeks, we we um, had we got on the bus and we knew we were going to have a, a day in Berlin. I had never been to Berlin, so obviously it was East Berlin because they weren't going to take us to the west. Because in the evening, we were going to catch the train back from Friedrichstrasse back to Paris North. Um, so we had a day in Berlin, and that's when I fell in love with Berlin. I just loved it. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was an amazing place, even though it was the East, and it was a bit grey, and it was a bit socialist, you know, and you had big placards to the glory of the, you know, socialist party and the whatever. But it was such an, I don't know, there was something about it. There was something about Berlin anyway. And uh, I remember thinking, I want to go back there. And I want to go to the other side as well. But I, I loved East Berlin very, very much. And in the evening, they uh, treated us to a really nice meal, you know, really nice restaurant just next to the cathedral. You've been to Berlin, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just behind the cathedral, I think it must have been near Museum Insel in that area. Oh, okay. Um, I, I couldn't tell you where it is now, but it was really nice food, and yeah. um, it was it was just an amazing place. We were again left to roam around uh, as long as we got back. I can't remember where we had to meet again. What the restaurant, and then we went to Friedrichstrasse. Somehow we went through the customs quite quickly. I think maybe it's because we were a group and we must have a group visa or something. And we were taken to one area of the station, which was just for people getting on that train. And the train was at about half ten-ish. It was getting dark then because it gets dark very quickly from August onwards in, in, in Germany. And um, 
what struck me there were the sort of Volkspolizisten or Grenzpolizisten, and they had German shepherds. And our train was already there waiting for us. And they were checking underneath the, um, the carriages to see if there was nobody sort of hanging underneath or something like that. I don't know. I mean, it was only the people getting on that train that were allowed on that side of the station. There was like a big wall between that area where we were, that platform, and the other platforms. You couldn't see the other people on the other platforms. Because Friedrich Schasser had this sort of like two areas, one where it was a, a regular S-Bahn station for yes. East Berlin, and then there was this separate platform area for the S-Bahns that were going into West Berlin and the international trains as That's well. That's right, yes. Yes, our train was the... I think it was the Warsaw. And and then did that take you back nonstop to Paris? Didn't stop in West Berlin? And was... It didn't stop. It didn't stop in West Berlin, no. I don't think so. I can't remember. Um, all I know, it was a, a long journey again, all the way to back to Paris. So we were very pleased to be back, I must admit. Yeah. And I bet your parents were delighted that you'd uh, not ended up in a gulag or something. Yes, they were. Because we couldn't communicate with them at all. We, we could send some postcards, uh, which were probably read anyway. And um, that was it. You know, we didn't have any phones or anything like that. So for a whole month, my parents had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so I sent, I think I sent a postcard from Leipzig, and I think I sent one from Magdeburg, and that was about it. And I don't know how long it took it took them to get there. Yeah, you probably got back before the postcard. Or... <laughs> no, they got them. They got them. Okay, okay, okay. But um, so in 1985, you uh, fulfill your promise to return. To I Berlin. did. Why, why are you back in Berlin in 1985? Sorry, I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger. Do stay tuned for Mary Claude's next episode. Of Return to Berlin. Don't miss the episode extras, such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, 
received the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.